0: Thing we enjoy week after week on this show is the good, the bad, and the ugly. And we're generally in debt to The Week magazine for their selections of Good Week 4, Bad Week 4, which we often modify. And given that we have a reservoir of material this week, let's do two items from each category. According to The Week magazine, it was a good week a couple of weeks back for, I guess you'd say, Russia, with the news that 6,000 troops deployed to Reykjavik, Iceland for NATO training, apparently drained the city capital of beer. Bartender Ingvar Svensson said, we had to send people out of the bar to our warehouses to bring beer back as quickly as possible. Radio Prax is unaware that Russia has any plans to expand its hegemony over the North Atlantic, but we think they must find that news reassuring. And speaking of the North Atlantic, it was a good week, I guess you'd say, for sequels with the news of a renewed plan to build Titanic 2, an ocean liner modeled on the doomed vessel that sank in 1912 with a loss of 1,500 lives. The Blue Star Line officials promised the new ship will deliver the, quote, authentic Titanic experience, unquote. (laughs) We assume they're leaving the iceberg out. And it was a bad week for parenting, we'd have to say with the launch a couple of weeks back in South Korea of a diaper insert that informs parents via, via a smartphone app when their baby has peed or pooped and needs a change. Our suggestion would be that the South Korean parents maybe ought to get their nose out of the cell phone and pay more attention to baby. We're just not sure that a full diaper requires high-tech solutions. And it was definitely a bad week recently for interfaith solidarity with the news that Vice President Mike Pence appeared with a quote-unquote rabbi at a unity rally honoring the victims of the Pittsburgh synagogue massacre. But it turns out the rabbi, Loren Jacobs, is actually a messianic Jew, which is an evangelical group that tries to convert Jews to Christianity. And by the way, he was stripped of the title of rabbi back in 2003. Oy! And the word is that it was an ugly week a couple weeks back for snacking, with the news that a wild brawl erupted in a Swedish concert hall during a performance of Gustav Mahler's Symphony No. 5. The flashpoint was a concert goer loudly rustling a bag of candy during the symphony's tear-joke, tear-jerking fourth movement. Jump and jimini. And we think it was an ugly week for priorities last week with estimates that Americans this year will collectively spend $450 million on Halloween costumes for their pets. This is more than double the amount spent on pet costumes back in 2010, an increase, experts say, that reflects people being able to send out photos of costumed dogs and cats on social media. Now, being that I still at least temporarily remain on social media. It is my hope that if, dear listener, you elect to dress up Fido or Fluffy in a Halloween costume, that's fine, but I don't need a picture of it, really. Thanks anyway. Story, we're not sure whether it's good, bad, or ugly, but the story is that Julian Assange has had had a judge in Ecuador rule that the WikiLeaks founder, who's been living in the Ecuadorian embassy in London to avoid extradition, must keep the bathroom tidy and clean up after his pet cat. Assange has claimed that the embassy's cleanliness requirements violated his fundamental rights and freedoms. No word yet on whether there's going to be any embarrassing leaks regarding the Ecuadorian government coming through WikiLeaks. We'll we'll just have to see. And uh, from the Only in America file, we have an item we probably need to do some follow-up on. But the story was that in Ford County, Kansas, officials moved the only polling place in Dodge City beyond city limits. Dodge City, which is 60% Hispanic, has been long criticized for having only one polling place for 13,000 voters. This year, citing road construction, Republican officials have moved the polling place out of town more than a mile from any bus stop gee do you think there's been any efforts to suppress votes in this country particularly in kansas but good news from kansas apparently chris kolbach was defeated in his bid to become the kansas governor he was seen as a rising star in the republican party based on the strength of his dubious assertions that millions of illegals were voting in elections and that what we needed to do was to utilize cross check and other programs to purge the voter rolls of suspicious voters and it it does seem that you know to qualify for being a suspicious voter, you had to have a name that seemed to be either perhaps African-American or Hispanic. And doggone it, we need to get Greg pallas back on this program. Mr. Midland, make a note of that again. Noted. Again. Let's do a couple science items, shall we? All right, article in New Scientist magazine by Claire Wilson notes that a small study has found that afternoon baths, just twice a week, can produce a moderate but persistent lift in mood. The size of the benefit was similar to that seen with physical exercise. They note that the method could work because raising body temperature in the afternoon helps restore the normal circadian rhythm of temperature, often disturbed in people with depression. As someone who enjoys a hot bath on a regular basis, I would say I find this not surprising at all. Just just make sure you got a good plug for your bathtub. And also from New scientists in letters to the editor, a man named Paul Whitley pointed out to the magazine that soya milk can t- contain as little as 5% soybeans. Our author noted that the best he'd seen in the UK was 12%. He notes that similarly, almond milk can have widely ranging amounts of almonds from as low as 2%. He noted that he once saw one that had no almonds but only almond flavoring. Writer noted that the bulk of liquid in dairy milk alternatives, apart from the headline ingredients, is made up generally of cornstarches, maltodextrins, gums and sweeteners, usually apple juice, and added vitamins. Might be a good reminder to check your label. And while we may have mentioned this item before, it's probably worth mentioning again. According to the People's Daily News site in China, Chengdu Aerospace Science and Technology Microelectronics System Research Institute try saying that fast, wants to launch an artificial moon to illuminate the city of Chengdu at night, saying the fake moon would be eight times as bright as the real moon. The magazine wondered whether this would be enough to pierce Chengdu's notorious smog. And here's a weird one. Scientists down under suspect that some rock in Tasmania may have formerly been attached to rock in Arizona's Grand Canyon. Yeah, go figure. Evidently, Jake Mulder, a geologist at Australia's Monash University, thinks the rocks at the bottom of the Grand Canyon, which are between 1.1 and 1.2 billion years old, look just like similarly ancient rocks in Tasmania. The claim is that these rocks contain minerals with the same geochemical fingerprint as those in the Grand Canyon. Apparently, about a billion years ago, all the Earth's continental plates formed a single supercontinent called Rodinia. But working out exactly how they fit together is not a simple task. And I'm not sure the task has been simplified by the knowledge that Tasmania broke off of Arizona. But good luck, scientists. And efforts to control the world's spiraling out-of-control climate may have received a setback with the election of Jair Bolsonaro, Brazil's far right-wing new president new scientist notes that always set out a few specific environmental policies and his statements have sometimes been contradictory. There's no doubt that he wants to make it easier to clear the country's rainforest for new farms, mines, and roads. The magazine notes that because his party does not have a majority in Brazil's National Congress, Bolsonaro cannot overturn laws that limit deforestation by landowners and ones that guarantee land rights to indigenous peoples. But this obstacle may not matter because if he slashes support for the agencies to enforce the environmental laws farmers and miners will be able to flout these rules with impunity and in a story we're only going to make passing reference to new scientists in a cover story based on a special investigation is questioning whether we really did find gravitational waves yes this apparent breakthrough in physics uh well it's it's now being questioned did not have time to really read this article to talk about it, but the problem seems to arise from how they separated the signal from the noise. They might not have done it right. Let's talk about it next week. In other tech-related news, uh, we would refer you to The New Yorker. It's article by Charles DuHig titled Stop Thief uh, is a worthy read. This comes from the October 22nd issue. The article concerns a man named Anthony Lewandowski, considered to be, at least until recently, or considered to be, at least up until around 2011, I guess, uh, one of Google's most talented and best-known employees. The article notes that Lewandowski was a gifted engineer who frequently spoke to newspapers and magazines, including The New Yorker, about the future of robotics. It was Lewandowski who, with his colleagues, had persuaded Google's leadership to spend millions of dollars inventing self-driving cars. The story is that Google had recruited Lewandowski and a handful of other roboticists four years earlier after the group competed in the DARPA Grand Challenge, a government-sponsored self-driving car race across deserts in California, Nevada. Most of the race's competitors had built automated cars. But Lewandowski had constructed a self-driving motorcycle called Ghost Rider. In part, he later admitted because he hoped that its novelty would draw attention. The magazine notes that Ghost Rider performed rather pitifully. It broke down a few feet from the starting line. In almost every other respect, it was a success. The audacity of Lewandowski's creation, coupled with his talent for charming journalists, made him the competition's star. Keep in mind... It broke down a few feet from the starting line. Yet, the National Museum of American History acquired Ghost Rider for its permanent collection. And in 1927, Lewandowski, 27 years old with only a master's degree in engineering from Berkeley, got offered a job at Google worth millions of dollars. At the time, the company was hoping to dominate the market for navigational services with software offering turn-by-turn instructions to urbanites seeking the quickest route to the grocery store stuff we apparently now take for granted. Anyway, back in 07, Google was betting that as smartphones matured, users would willingly hand over digital information about where they were and where they wanted to go, a valuable trove for a company devoted to selling targeted ads. To perfect such software, Google needed on-the-ground details, the exact location of speed limit signs on roads, eye-level assessments of which off-ramps were easy to negotiate, and which required sudden lane changes. Lewandowski and his Grand Challenge teammates had developed a method for inexpensively stitching together thousands of landscape photographs, then combining them with GPS coordinates in order to plot navigable self-driving paths over his dusty hills and creek beds. And, notes the article, the technology could be adapted to map city streets, but millions of up-to-date photographs would have to be taken first. Is this ringing a bell, dear listener? After Lewandowski arrived at Google, his plan was to send out hundreds of cars equipped with cameras to photograph America's roads. The article notes, then he encountered Google's bureaucracy. At this point in time, Google had quite a, quite a number of middle managers. But founder Larry Page wanted groups like Lewandowski's because they would cut through red tape. And so it was that Lewandowski and his team were asked to map millions of miles of U.S. roads within a year. They finished it within nine months. They then set up an enormous office in Hyderabad, India, to begin mapping every street on Earth. And of course, today, Google Maps is the dominant navigational app used daily by more than 30 million people. How it is, we all let Google drive its cars through all of our neighborhoods and photograph all of our houses and document where we all live. Well, uh, I think they seem to have encountered a surprisingly limited amount of red tape. This is an invasion of all of our privacy on uh, a monumental scale. I admit good has come of this, but I know people photographed in their front yards going about their business, recognizable through Google. We don't have time to go through this entire article today, that's for sure, but there are a couple of hair-raising points. After they got Google Maps done and got the software available to, in theory, Take driverless cars around our streets without, presumably, causing too much mayhem. People like Lewandowski realize at some point, well, if they're going to proceed with this, they're going to have to bite the bullet and send lots of driverless cars out and see what happens. Make it a learning experience when things necessarily don't go perfectly because you can take that data and improve matters. But, well, to read from the article, the software that guided Google's autonomous vehicles improved by ingesting immense amounts of test-drive data. One effective way to teach autonomous vehicles how to, say, merge onto a busy freeway is to have them do it repeatedly, allowing their algorithms to explore various approaches and learn from mistakes. A human safety driver always sat in the front seat of an autonomous vehicle, ready to take over if an experiment went awry. But pushing the technology's boundaries required exposing the car's software to tricky situations. If it's your job to advance technology, safety cannot be your number one concern, Lewandowski told the author. It's always safer to leave the car in the driveway. You'll never learn from a real mistake. So it was that one day in 2011, a Google executive named Isaac Taylor learned that while he was on, that while he was on paternity leave, Lewandowski had modified the car's software so he could take them on otherwise forbidden routes. A Google executive recalls witnessing Taylor and Lewandowski shouting at each other. Lewandowski told Taylor the only way to show him why his approach was necessary was to take the ride together. The men, both still furious, jumped into a self-driving Prius and headed off. The car went onto the freeway where it traveled past an on-ramp. According to people with knowledge of events that day, the Prius accidentally boxed in another vehicle, a Camry. A human driver could easily have handled the situation by slowing down and letting the Camry merge. But Google's software wasn't prepared for that scenario. The cars continued speeding down the freeway side by side. The Camry's driver jerked his car onto the right shoulder, then, apparently trying to avoid a guardrail, he veered to the left. The Camry pinwheeled across the freeway and into the median. Lewandowski, who was acting as the safety driver, swerved hard to avoid colliding with the Camry causing Taylor to injure his spine so severely he eventually required surgery. The Prius regained control and turned the corner on the freeway, leaving the Camry behind. Lewandowski and Taylor didn't know how badly damaged the Camry was. They didn't go back to check on the other driver or to see if anyone else had been hurt. Neither they nor other Google executives made inquiries with authorities. The police were not informed that a self-driving algorithm contributed to the accident. Lewandowski, rather than being cowed by the incident, later defended it as an invaluable source of data, an opportunity to learn how to avoid similar mistakes. He sent colleagues an email with video of the near collision and remained in his leadership role and continued taking cars on non-official routes. Do you find this scary, dear listener? I do. I'm not sure when it comes to self-driving cars, we should take the attitude of, well, you want to make an album, you got to break a few eggs. The article cites Phil Ting, a Democrat in the California state legislature who represents San Francisco, who has sponsored autonomous vehicle legislation. Ting said, If there's a self driving car behaving in an unsafe way, that obviously should be reported. If they aren't being reported, that deserves examination. The former senior Google executive said of accidents involving the public that's the Silicon Valley way fail fast and fail often. But these are cars we're talking about, not iPhone apps. The wrong failure can kill someone. Actually, there's plenty more in this article that's even more disturbing, but, you know, this is not the New Yorker radio hour. If you want to hear this covered in detail, write them a letter. See if they'll bring Charles Duhigg on board. Here's a couple of curiously parallel articles from around the world. Dateline Islamabad, Pakistan. Protests broke out across Pakistan last week after the country's Supreme Court ordered the release of an illiterate Christian woman who had been sentenced to death for blasphemy. Asia Bibi, age 47, was convicted in 2010 of insulting the Prophet Muhammad, a charge she denied during an argument with fellow farm laborers over the use of a water bucket, which they did not want her as a non-Muslim to touch. The case led lawmakers to propose amending the blasphemy laws, but after massive protests organized by conservative Muslim groups, the law was not changed. But it appears she was released. Meanwhile, in Ireland, in another sign of massive social change, voters last week overwhelmingly voted to remove blasphemy, remove blasphemy as an offense from the country's constitution. No one has been charged with blasphemy in the history of the Irish state, yet Ireland passed a law in 2009 that made the offense punishable by a fine of more than $28,000. All major parties supported the change and 65% of the voters chose to decriminalize blasphemy. And in a story that oddly seems to combine these two items, well, sort of, turns out the Irish singer formerly named Sinead O'Connor has posted photographs of herself wearing a hijab. And she has announced, I'm proud to have become a Muslim. She took the name Shuhada, which means one who bears witness. Born Roman Catholic, the singer famously tore up a photo of Pope John Paul II on a 1992 episode of Saturday Night Live. Evidently, a ceremony in Dublin marked her conversion to Islam, and she posted a video in which she sings the Islamic call to prayer, which we're quite certain she did not do in a blasphemous way. And for Mr. McMillan's part, he feels quite certain that she will not be tearing up a picture of the Prophet Muhammad on TV anytime soon. And in filings for divorce, the wife of white nationalist Richard Spencer has accused him of choking her, dragging her by the hair, and trying to punch her while she was pregnant. Spencer, a leader of the alt-right, was videoed shouting Heil Trump at a 2016 white nationalist event in Washington, D.C. The attendees greeted him with a Nazi salute. Nina Koropudlavanova, who married Spencer in 2010 and separated from him in 2017, says he has called her genetically defective and would often say the only language women understand is violence. Spencer, age forty, called the allegations a wild mischaracterization of who I am. And I think we'll close the show with three obituaries. The first, former South Boston mob boss James Whitey Bulger. He appears to have been beaten to death last week by his fellow inmates in his Maximum Security Prison. Bulger age 89, was serving two life sentences from 2013 after being convicted of ordering or carrying out 11 murders. He was 89 and wheelchair bound. His ruthless run as a gang leader in the 70s and 80s inspired Jack Nicholson's character in Martin Scorsese's film, The Departed. It does appear that inmates in this maximum security prison did, at least in some cases, favor the death penalty. And the passing of David Wise is one we probably should devote an entire segment to if we can find the right guest. David Wise was one of the foremost authorities on the Central Intelligence Agency, much to the agency's annoyance. The investigative reporter authored and co-wrote a trove of best-selling non-fiction books that gave ordinary Americans a glimpse inside its secretive world. There was 1964's The Invisible Government, which I have on my shelf, a well-sourced account of the CIA's involvement in the Bay of Pigs invasion, and the coups in both Iran and Guatemala. He wrote Night Mover about the agency's bumbling efforts to unearth a Soviet mole, who turned out to be CIA officer Aldrich Ames. The CIA was so angered by revelations in the Invisible Government that it appointed a task force to consider how to discredit the book. It recommended the use of such assets as the agency may have, that's in quotes, to plant bad reviews. The effort failed. The book became a number one bestseller. It's pretty clear that anyone who's going to write about intelligence agencies needs to have some inside people, some sources that can tell them what's going on. And Wise was no exception. He became known as one of the best connected writers on the spy trade. And, oddly enough, one of his main sources for the Invisible Government was none other than former CIA head Alan W. Dulles. For more on the subject of Alan Dulles, we would refer you to a previous Radio Parallax interview with Salon.com founder David Talbot. He wrote a book entitled The Devil's Chessboard that, well, has a lot to say about Mr. Dulles. I'm sure that David Wise had a few things to say too, but you know, if if Dulles is your source, you're probably not going to hit Dulles all that hard, don't you think? Anyway, a very interesting man, very interesting books, a very interesting subject. I hope we can talk about more, but we're a little short on time today. So let's end with an obituary concerning the death of Joachim Ronenberg. On a February night in 1943, Lieutenant Joachim Ronenberg and a squad of Norwegian resistance fighters parachuted onto a snow-covered plateau in German-occupied Norway. They had been tasked by British intelligence with destroying a secret Nazi project at a hydroelectric plant 50 miles west of Oslo. Ronenberg and his, and his men were told only that German scientists were distilling something called heavy water. Eleven days after making landfall, Ronenberg led his eight fighters down a steep gorge across a frozen river and up the other side into the plant, sneaking past Nazi guards. Once inside, they crawled through ventilation ducts and planted, placed explosives with 30 second fuses the squad heard the thud of the blast as they raced past German barracks. It was only at war's end that he learned that the heavy water had been a crucial ingredient in Hitler's efforts to build an atomic bomb. News stories about this item said that if the raid had failed, at least they were quoting runenberg in this, London could have ended up looking like Hiroshima. It turned out that's overstating the case just a bit. The Nazi plans to build an atomic bomb never got even remotely close to achieving that end. Hitler did not set up a Manhattan Project. And if he had, he probably would have been stuck for scientists because most of them fled Europe to get away from him. But better to be safe than sorry. British intelligence was determined to to stop the production of heavy water from this plant, and they succeeded. An earlier mission to destroy that plant had resulted in disaster. 41 commandos died in glider crashes or were executed by their captors. Ronenberg and his men thought their own raid would be a suicide mission. Yet they suffered no casualties and eluded the 2,800 German soldiers sent to hunt them down. They skied 280 miles across forest and mountains to neutral Sweden. The daring of Ronenberg and his team was celebrated in the 1965 movie The Heroes of Telemark starring Kirk Douglas. Ronenberg became a journalist with the Norwegian state broadcaster after the war and looked back fondly on the raid. He said in 2013, it was the best skiing weekend I've ever had. Yours truly first encountered this story in the early 1980s. There was a book out at that time, well, I think it was been out for a few years by then, called A Man with the title A Man Called Intrepid, about Sir William Stevenson, who ran the British Intelligence Service during the war. A preceptor I had at the time, a very fascinating elderly Dutch gentleman, told me that he had taken part in the raid. I was quite fascinated to hear his tales of how it went down, but I did notice after he told me these gripping stories that he was reading the book The Man Called Intrepid, wherein such stories were laid out. I have wondered over the years whether perhaps he was telling me the truth, but the obituaries of Walking Runnenberg don't seem to mention any people other than Norwegians skiing across their country to neutral Sweden, not to say that there couldn't have been a Dutchman among them. I hope there was. But sadly, I I fear there was not. Oh, I did note that some wag posted on Facebook recently that any conservatives out there who are dead set against any refugees trying to flee their country into freedom are, from this point forward, banned from ever seeing the sound of music again. You've been listening to Radio Parallax, which was produced as all these programs are by Edward McMillan. I'm your host, Douglas Everett, and I look forward to seeing you again next week.